Welcome to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole. I am joined this week by another PFFer, if that's a word, uh, Brad Spielberger. Brad is relatively new to PFF. He'd done some work with Over the Cap before. He is now a cap analyst with us, a cap guru, I like to say. And I thought it was a good time to have Brad on the pod for a couple of different reasons. I mean, number one, we'll discuss the Super Bowl. We'll talk that stuff. Uh, wasn't the most exciting game. Everyone watched it, I presumably, if you tuned into this. But I think there maybe are some takeaways by as to what happened and how to interpret what happened. And maybe, you know, get into some goats, Tom Brady, greatest athletes, sort of some of that sort of talk. You know, we got to get those takes out there. So, th- so that'll be the first half. And then I want to also discuss what's coming up because Brad's input when it comes to the trades that have been happening. He's written some great articles about hypothetical scenarios for Deshaun Watson, looking at the Matthew Stafford trade, looking at the maybe Carson Wentz trade that is coming up. And again, this is being taped at 1 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesday. So by the time you listen to this, that could have already happened. And Brad also happens to be, I was going to say a long-suffering Bears fan, but there's a, has a bit all suffering, right? So, so he's a Bears fan, and obviously they're the ones who's really linked to Wentz. So I thought thought that was good there. So you can play GM for for the Bears here in this decision, and, and who you want to have as part of this QB carousel that's coming this offseason. Does that sound good? Yeah, it sounds great. I think I've been a shadow GM in my mind for a couple of years now, so might as well you know put pen to paper and see what we can do here. How often does shadow GM Brad? PFF underscore Brad. How often does that align with real GM uh, uh, Ryan uh, underscore pace? It's pretty funny because I have like a very frugal approach. Like I, I think I would probably bother an owner how, how little I wanted to spend and how I want to be like a money ball guy and, and attack all these value situations. And he is the opposite. Like he, he is, you know, they trade up every single year in the draft. They overpay for everyone. There, there's no set price point. They won't match. So you know, I think some football people probably prefer his method, but I, I you know, I, it rarely aligns. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm probably with you, although I think it's easy for us to say on the outside. It's probably if you're on the inside and how long of a track are these guys really going to have? Right. Like, How long of a window are they really going to have to do something? So when you have a young quarterback who you just draft, let's go back to Khalil Mack, because that was probably the big trade that was everyone flipped some people flipped 180 degrees on the value of that where you know you had a young quarterback you just drafted you're going to figure out what's going on you're going to bring in this uh, superstar player maybe establish that sort of window so I get it and I think we've seen this in a few different places we sit with with less Sneed in um, in LA now with the Rams is once you're in you got to just kind of keep digging that is at a certain point and you're just hoping you're going to hit gold eventually down the road because I don't think a lot of guys have the opportunity to do something like maybe what Howie Roseman is, is going to do with Philadelphia where he seems so closely aligned with Jeff Lurie that maybe he can make his way out to a to a whole new cycle I'm not sure if that's the case with the other guys yeah so right off the top there you know you talk about Jeffrey Lurie and Stan Kroenke in LA like those guys have different situations where their owners like cash is not a constraint for them um, whereas, you know, we talk about the cap and I obviously the study, study the cap and I'm always talking cap hits and things like that. But truly, your cash budget is, is what's actually, you know, dictating your moves each offseason. So the thing with that is with Ryan Pace is, I mean, the Bears are effectively a mom and pop shop. I mean, they're owned by, you know, descendants of the Hallis family who don't have like a business like their business is the Bears. Now, they're not cheap at all. They are willing to spend and they've been one of the higher cash spenders, but they're not really like you said, they're not going to move on from guys really quickly and things like that. And so. Going back to the Khalil Mack trade, though, I would say that I have been consistently fine with it. Um, and I know, you know, even some analytics board or whatever voted it like the greatest trade ever for the Raiders and all that. And I obviously understand the arguments that you shouldn't be trading multiple first round picks for a defensive player 
maybe any player. But first of all, I think it gets glossed over. They got a second in return. So it was really a first and a pick swap. And this might be, you know, hindsight revisionist history, but Cleo Mack has been elite every season as a Bear. He was first in PFF wins above replacement among edge rushers this year. So, of course, that's obviously, you know, beneficial in hindsight. But the key point is, yes, when you have a rookie uh, quarterback on a, on a rookie contract, you should try to push the chips in and try to go win some Super Bowls or compete in the playoffs with that cheap asset. The issue was in self-scouting, thinking that, Trubisky was, you know, going to take that next step and be really good when they probably should have realized he still had a lot of issues in his game. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. Now, let's say first to, I was going to say a team who also was pushing his chips in, although I don't know if the Chiefs went that far. They went somewhat, somewhat there in that they didn't let guys like Sammy Watkins go that they could have let go. Uh, they, I mean, I, I don't know if you want to qualify drafting a running back in the first round as a win now type of move. You presumably it is because I don't know if anyone believes, even those who draft, uh, even, uh, and even those who draft running backs in the first round, I don't know if they believe they're going to have much value beyond their first contract. So maybe that's a little bit of a win now move, but as, as we all saw on Sunday, it did not, it did not pay off. So were you surprised okay, the, the talk, were you surprised by how much, the the accuracy of this offensive line issue, which was either harped on as being the reason that the Bucks could win or was being dismissed as something that the Chiefs could work around. Were you surprised how it just really fell in almost exactly as the case would go for those who thought the Bucks defense was going to have a chance against the Chiefs? You know, it was surprising. First and foremost, like Mahomes was so good this year with, you know, they had two opt-outs on the offensive line before the season even started. Uh, and, and then had injuries, you know, Mitchell Schwartz barely played the whole season, probably their best guy on the offensive line at right tackle. So because that kept happening and it didn't seem to matter, I think we kind of took it for granted. Granted, I went viral in, in a bad way for, I thought the bills were going to do maybe not exactly what happened, you know, on Sunday, but I thought the bills and Sean McDermott and, and they do not have a great front seven, but I thought they were going to do what we just saw. Yes. Eric Fisher played in that game, but I thought they were going to dial up a bunch of pressures I thought Jerry Hughes and some of those guys in the interior were going to make things difficult for Mahomes. And it wasn't like they, you know, were close to the Bucs. It was nowhere close. They, they had no resistance to Mahomes. So while I originally did think this could happen at some point, I think I also got lulled back to sleep after the Bills game and was like, you know what, if, if it's not happening, why should we? Yes, the Bucs have a great defense, great defensive coordinator and Todd Bowles. Obviously, Shaq Barrett, JPP off the edge. Vita Vea, who I'm sure we'll get to, was, was a standout and. You know, he played in the NFC Championship game in this game, and that was it after his injury in week five, I want to say. So, you know, they, they just were better up front and also clearly must have schemed some things up. But it was surprising, but it really shouldn't have been that surprising. Yeah, I mean, you're right that they, I mean, they had a couple of weeks to prepare. So that's something we all thought about. We thought Andy Reid would be in his bag because he's especially good always coming off of a bye week. And you could see how a mid-game injury would cause – real hectic problems but here you know you had a couple of weeks you can move some guys around you could see what what was going to happen although I did think the right side of the offensive line was going to be a particular problem because you're going to have a backup right guard in Wiley kicking out to tackle and then you're bringing in a new guard so that there'll be some issues there now I think you're right that the Bills did not have the same sort of pass rush that the the Bucks had and what's interesting is if you look at pressure that they were bringing on Mahomes. Now, this is some work that uh, Timo Riske, our, one of our analysts, does here. He looks at these survival curves for different offensive lines, and essentially what it's doing is it's plotting the time to throw versus how likely it is you're going to get a pressure at a particular time to throw. So the longer the quarterback holds the ball, the longer the time to throw, 
um, the more likely it is that you're going to have a pressure. So he was, he was plotting these curves and the curves didn't look that different for the bills. And they did for the, uh, the bucks when they played the bills of the bucks. So I think there's maybe a couple different reasons for that. In, in, in both of them, it looked like pressure was coming early, earlier than you would expect. So it's a bad offensive line essentially. So I think there's a couple of different reasons there. One, I think there was a coverage difference of what was going on here. Um, I mean, if, I don't know if when you watch the bills game, you saw how, quite often Mahomes is able to just throw the ball right out to Tyreek Hill where he was maybe four or five yards downfield. And that was it. It was very quick throws. His time to throw was, was very, very low. One of the lowest of the entire season, as opposed to one of the highest in the game against the Bucks. So I think that was a huge difference. They seem to be pressing up a little bit more playing man coverage against, um, against the chiefs and then still having that deep shell. So you couldn't go deep. You were, you were pressing man. And then, and I think that was a big difference. And I think the pressure that they were bringing was just on a different level. It was, it wasn't, you know, let's say a pressure could either be one guy coming off of the edge who you have to avoid, and then and then you're fine after that. Or the pressure could be like we saw here, where it looked to me on a lot of these plays, the entire pocket was getting pushed back six, seven, eight yards. And especially that interior pressure, which we didn't focus on a lot because you saw the guys coming off the edge. But if you're trying to throw a quick pass and there's someone who's only two yards away from you as opposed to being six, seven yards away from you, it really kills your angles and your ability to do so. So I think that was a big difference where – it just the type of pressure was so much different and so much, so much more intense that even Mahomes is what he was doing. Could not, could not execute the type of plays that you need to be able to execute. If you don't have at least part of the offensive line holding up. Yeah, no, I think it's twofold there. It's so like you said, first of all, you know, I think Ed Oliver and, and that bill's interior was not um, you know, obviously not, not up to snuff of Vita Vea. And so like you said, he, we've seen Mahomes drop back, you know, nine to 10 feet and then step up when an edge rusher, you know, kind of clears the edge. He couldn't do that. So not only Barrett and JP were getting around the edge, but then Vea was right in the middle every time. And then I think the second piece that I found interesting was, and again, this is all like just perfect for the Bucks, but Matt Milano for the Bills is a good coverage linebacker, but Tremaine Edmonds, very athletic, very good against the run and all that, but, but not a good coverage linebacker. And I think Andy Reid's known for that screen game and a lot of the, you know, just throwing it out to Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, maybe even Tyree Kill, Nicole Hardman, whoever. And I think Levante David and Devin White just took that away. Um, and so he didn't even have the outlet passes to kind of dump stuff off, like you said, throw it short and just let them create yard after the catch. He didn't have that either. So he was not only taking so long getting pressured and he was looking for long developing routes downfield because the underneath stuff wasn't really there. Um, and then I guess one more you know, point in the Bills, I think Trey White is probably the best corner of both the Bucks and the Bills, but it kind of shows weak link, like the rest of the Bills corners are not good. Whereas the Bucks, you know, Sean Murphy Bunting had a great playoffs. I know he didn't grade super well all year, but second round pick, they finally put him in the slot. He's been, you know, much better in the slot. And then Jamel Dean opposite Carl Carlton Davis is also a good corner. So you need like plus guys at all three spots, which they did. Um, and it just took everything away, it seemed. Yeah, I mean, it looked like with Tyreek, and I've seen some people who've been charting this, it looked like he was being legitimately, I mean, not double teamed, but had explicit help over the top on every single play. So they could really bring someone in there. I saw Tredavious White playing against Tyreek quite a bit, and I don't know if they were they were singling him up. That that that, that That's probably not going on too too often but i think some of the time they were uh, uh, presuming you know he's the he's the strong link right so they have to use him a little bit more and adjust the coverage elsewhere and because of that he was playing off of tyreek hill more which 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 made it difficult now some critiques that i've seen out there and this is normally a critique i would press up against but i, I don't know I, I, maybe I'll, I'll throw it by you first is i'm surprised i haven't seen more people complaining about the fact that the chiefs did not run the football and i know that it's something that we would normally dismiss as, as not, as not being something you would do, but I'll, I'll say that during this game, 
I actually was thinking about that. And like, because not, you never know, like there's randomness, of course. And, and you never know, like if, if the passing is not going well, it doesn't mean that it won't come back and, and be, be good later on. But it did seem like there was something about this game. And it actually reminded me a little bit of the Saints game where I was also thinking that during the Saints game that maybe the Chiefs should run the ball a little bit more now that they were able to work their way out of that and, and, and win that game with some miraculous throws. But both of them did seem like areas where I could see them running. I don't think it's just hindsight to say maybe they could have mixed that in a little bit more. Um, I don't know if it would have caused, like people are saying you run the ball and then you cause the Bucks to get out of, of their, of their deep looks. And then you can pass the ball. I don't know if that's happening. Cause I don't know if the Bucks go out no matter what, but at the very least you may be able to, to get a little bit better third down. And I do think, you know, Mahomes is so great at converting these long third downs, but it's really tough when you have that pressure, uh, on these longer third downs because you're, you're, you're like disrupted in the middle of, uh, in the middle of your pattern. You're, you, you, it's too long. You don't have enough time to get to someone when you need that, get that seven or eight yards. And then you have to scramble out. And now that you're scrambled out now player, now guys are all over the place. So you can't even necessarily take advantage of that, of that in between point would be the exact time to throw. So do you think there's any, what do you think about this run critique that they should have run the ball more often? Yeah, so I think this is where truly where I think Todd Bowles, you know, with that extra week of preparation is where he came in and looked like, you know, a genius and that our new coworker who, who knows football, you know, especially defense and coverage schemes better than, than us and better than most people, you know, around. Uh, Deontay Lee was talking about how Todd Bowles sits in single high, one deep safety more than more than most teams in the NFL. And they had a ton of two high looks. And also I remember um, uh, Josh Hermsmeyer had a study. It was box defenders over expectation. And Todd Bowles was first in the NFL. He had like eight defenders in the box more than any other defensive coordinator this season. Um, and so he was doing things differently. So I, I do think at a certain point when you're continuing to see two high looks, you know, they eventually maybe should have run the ball. But perhaps by the time they realized that adjustment would be smart was maybe it was too late. Right. So yeah, yeah. I think it's a fair critique. I think it's funny. You know, the, the Chiefs have convinced us that you don't need to run. And, and even the people that would never, you know, admit that you know, weren't even saying it, like you said, as much as you may expect. But, yeah, no, I think it was just kind of showing them looks and, and doing things that they just hadn't seen um, from the Bucs, not only in their first matchup, but just all season long. Um, and by the time they, you know, maybe adjusted, it, it was just too late. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's true. There was, there was an aspect of it being too late and that came into it and this, okay. So this comes to another, another part where I may be pushing back against people who I generally agree with. And, and I love Patrick Mahomes. Okay. Don't, don't, I mean, I'm like, I was like, Patrick Mahomes is underrated to start the, to start the season vis-a-vis other guys. I'm constantly defending him to being called, uh, you know, an apologist for whenever he does anything wrong. And I think it's hard if you watch the game to point specifically to plays that he did not make and say it was his fault. And I think people have made that point. They said the results weren't good, but what else could he have done? What else could he have done now? But okay. Like this is, again, this is without necessarily having the, the, the hindsight and the analysis or the capability to, to, to determine this as whether or not. He, he was pressing, I think, maybe a little bit in the in this in the fact when he was spinning out and running around and trying to make a big play over and over and over and over again, which I think was appropriate maybe in the fourth quarter. But it's, it seemed like that started a little bit earlier. And if you look at what happened to the, him this year, when they were playing these deep looks against him, against the Chargers to start the season, um, against the Raiders, I think they were doing some of that. He had some problems because he didn't really know how to just take what, what the defense was giving you. And not that he didn't know to, but he didn't want to, to, to take what the defense was giving you and so on. And I feel like at a certain point when he got down enough, 
um, when they started to get down, I felt like he was pressing a bit and he just assumed that there was that the, the protection was never going to be there. So therefore there may have been more of, of this scrambling around. I mean, maybe more of this like hero ball that you would say for someone like Wentz, other than the fact that he's not getting sacked 17 times a game, but he is actually getting, getting the ball off. So do, do you think he can maybe take some, some blame on, what, on what's going on or do you absolve him of what happened in this game? Yeah, I was going to say, I thought you may have mentioned your other favorite quarterback, Russell Wilson. Um, yeah, <laughs> Over, overrated, yes. Uh, the same yeah, I was calling yeah. It, yeah, Russell Wilson definitely would have taken 12 sacks in this exactly, game. Exactly, exactly. Where there are times where, yes, you understand that their, their offensive line is not holding up. Um, but at a certain point, yeah, I do think there was some hero ball aspect to it. I think especially, I remember the drive after they had that miraculous goal line stand, um, you know, which could have, like, put it, if they scored there, it could have really been out of reach almost by halftime. Um it was after that drive, so they kept it at, I want to say, 14-3 by holding him there instead of 21-3. Um, and he, he got a great, uh, you know, um, pass to Tyreek Hill to get them, you know, out of their own end zone. They got a first down on the first play. And then I, I remember the next series, he was, it was, again, it was like running around, trying to chuck it down. I'm like, listen, like, it's the end of the half. Take a, you know, take a longer drive, go down slow, try to go into halftime 14-10. And it almost felt like, you wanted to be up at halftime, which which evidenced even further, which I think no one talked about. Um, and I want to ask you this as well. Then when, you know, they didn't score, they, they punt the ball, which, you know, was their third 25-yard punt of the game from, from poor Tommy Townsend. But but those those timeouts they called for the Bucks on that drive before halftime, I think was a storyline that they kind of got overlooked. Um, I know, you know, I guess, you know, you know, the math behind it and all of that, and I know they wanted to get the ball back. But I want to say they called their last one with like 40 seconds left and the Bucks were at midfield. Well, I'm not sure what they thought they were going to be able to pull off there with no timeouts. And let's say the Bucks do punt. All right. You're on your own 20 with 30 seconds left with no timeouts. Like what are you, what are you going to accomplish? Yeah. I mean, again, I think they were, they were playing with the mentality or with the perspective of them, them being a dominant offense that can do, can impose its will. So, um, Again, I think generally that's right. Like generally you don't want to read too much into what's going on on the first handful of drives in a game. I mean, we saw like in the, against the Texans last year in the playoffs where they, they started off poorly, they were down 28, nothing. And then they just went on and scored six straight, six straight touchdowns. So, you know, you don't want to read too much into it, but no, no, I agree there. I think the, the first time out that they took after first down was justified. Um, if I remember correctly, the first down was a run. I don't know if it was Fournette or Jones and they picked up a few yards. So it wasn't, it wasn't even, wasn't more than five yards or anything like that. It may have only been two yards or one yard. And they called a timeout there because the bucks absolutely you you'd think now it didn't end up being the case. You think they absolutely could not be doing that because they only had one timeout. The bucks only had one timeout when they got the ball back. So if you're running the ball on first down with, whatever it was, uh, what was it, less than a minute left or, yeah. at, at that point? Um, if you're running the ball, you have no interest in scoring. You're trying to run out the clock, um, and you're trying to prevent the Chiefs from getting a score and then getting another score to, to start the second half. So I think that was good because you knew that they were in that mentality. Now, on second down, the they did throw the ball. But it was a conservative throw. I mean, they threw it right out to, I guess it was, I think it was Godwin. I don't know it was Godwin or Brown. And, and then they almost picked up the first down. Now that was the that was the point, right? Where that's the timeout that you really have to have to question in hindsight. But again, you know, how many different scenarios if you play this out, how many different scenarios do you get a 40-yard pass interference call followed by a 20-yard pass interference call, followed by 
converting the touchdown on the next play, which everything had to go perfectly correct. And they'll stop the clock, right? Like those, those pass, especially like if Evans catches the ball on that move and then he's tackled, then that's a whole different, that's a different scenario there too. So I, I think every played out against them, but I could see it going either way on that timeout. I wasn't necessarily against it though, because of what they showed on those first two plays, I thought maybe there was a chance that they would just try to run the ball again and see if they would pick it up rather than toss it up to Evans as they ended up doing it. And the risky play paid off for them. Yeah. And I mean, it's, I guess going against tendencies again, right? So both on offense and defense, they really just did things that they, you know, weren't doing all year long. I mean, they still did, you know, run the ball a good amount on, on early downs and stuff like that, but they definitely were bucking some trends and, and showing different looks and all that, which yeah, it definitely paid off. PFF in Sunday Night Football's Chris Collinsworth is teaming up with one of the best players on and off the field, 49ers All-Pro cornerback Richard Sherman. The Chris Collinsworth podcast featuring Richard Sherman is available now wherever you find your podcasts. They will provide the most interesting football conversation in sports every single week, and sometimes that means the discussion will venture off the field too. Additionally, Chris will be taking a dive into the game of football as he sees it, inviting in the best and brightest to talk about everything that is happening in the great game of football. Mark your calendars. You do not want to miss the best 60 minutes of insight this season. All right, let's get into some of the 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 topic du jour here of people trying to figure out whether or not Brady is, I don't know, the greatest athlete, the greatest human being, the greatest whatever that we're that we're talking about here. And you know, so here's the thing with, I'll tell you my own thing with Brady. And then you can tell me how you look at these things. I think it's, it's, it's hard to argue that he's not the most accomplished player, right? I mean, he literally has more championships than anyone else. And he's the quarterback on those teams, the quarterback being the most important position. Uh, and he went to the championship game many, many more times uh, than, than they actually won another three times on top of the seven victories. But you know, I don't know how much to weigh this longevity part of it, because if you look at his career starting in, in 2000, I believe, when, when he came into the league, you know, he didn't, didn't play much, came right in, won those championships. But his he would probably be a, been considered maybe, I don't know, maybe you could consider him a top five quarterback, but he clearly was not at the top of the league. He was never an all pro. He was never second team all pro. Uh, it wasn't until 2007, so we're talking, I think it was eight years into his career, that he had that MVP season when Randy Moss was there. He won the MVP, uh, for, you know, first team All-Pro for the first time there. That's the, but that's the only time that decade, if you go through 2009, as they do for these, for these awards, um, or through 2010, I guess, for these, for these awards, like the All-Decade team, that's the only time he was an All-Pro for, for there, despite having won those, those three championships. So, so you have that, and then you have the second half of the career here. So he won three championships when he wasn't really that, all that close to being the best player in the NFL by, in anyone's mind. Then you have the, the, the last two championships here. Clearly, he was not the greatest player when they beat the Rams in that, in that game a couple of years ago. And then again, this year, he had, he had a bounce-back year. But the defense relative to the league is better than the than the Bucks offense is relative to, to the to the league. You know, he's not he was not winning MVPs or things like that. So you could say five out of those seven championships at least were were won at a time where he maybe wasn't the best player ever. And if you look at other sports, you know, you're not going to say that for Michael Jordan or LeBron James or Serena Williams or Wayne Gretzky or whoever else you're going to throw into the mix there. So for that, it makes it a little bit more difficult with Brady and how how to figure out this this like accomplishment, especially when it comes to football versus how great you are as a, as a particular player when there's so many different aspects to the game. Yeah, no, I think one interesting thing, I don't think you hear it as much in the football conversation because the playoffs are, are kind of random. 
Um, and there's only, you know, sometimes you play two games before you make the, you know, if you get the buy in the first week, you play two more games and make the Super Bowl. So there's sample size issues and stuff like that. But in other sports, particularly basketball, you always hear about how playoff basketball is a different sport than regular season basketball. Like we look with Giannis Antetokounmpo is the most recent example, but like the guy dominates the league and was MVP back-to-back years and, and then can't really win in the playoffs. And, and it's because he's a bit one-dimensional, what he can do over the course of an 82 game season, what he can kind of impose his will on guys like, yeah, you can do that in game 50 out of 82 when, when guys aren't at their, you know, at their max and you're not seeing the other team's best defender every time and, and all, you know, all those things. I, I think Brady has a bit of that to, to him in, in football as well. I um, mean, even, even us talking about not playing hero ball, like he, he doesn't, even, even in that Falcons comeback, like there was plenty of, I mean, James Boyd had 20 targets in that game underneath, even when they were down, you know, three touchdowns, like, he doesn't seem to press. He doesn't seem to ever let anything kind of throw him off kilter. And so it's, it, there's, there's an aspect to it of, I think he's also just really good at playoff football. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, yes, he's had great situations that, you know, I, I think Bill Belichick is, is not only the best coach of all time, but also the best GM of all time. Like I, I could talk about that for, for a whole podcast, but, but I don't know. At a certain point, it's like, is there also a part of him galvanizing the locker room and getting everyone to buy in, getting everyone to believe in themselves and did that come with those three early Super Bowls and then he was able to do it? Or was that something that he innately had in him that he was he's always been able to do? Which and it's tough to tell. I mean, he wasn't even the starter at Michigan the whole time he was there. So it's like, there's so many factors and variables, but I, I do think at a certain point, I mean, even the three picks against Green Bay, like he didn't play all that well, um, but but he just seemed to control and command the, the entire time. And and obviously that was the case. And, and yeah, in the Super Bowl, like he, again, he was just efficient, um, didn't press, didn't do too much. Uh, took what the defense gave him. I mean, he had like 200 passing yards. I mean, obviously they were up a lot for most of the second half. But yeah, I think a lot of it is just that he he understands how the game changes come playoff time and how you're going to see de- defense's best you know best efforts, best looks, different looks. Um, and he and he's not thrown off by that. And I don't think Mahomes is generally thrown off by defenses showing him things different. I'm sure he's now seen every coverage that exists in the in the history of the NFL at this point you know, as defensive coordinators get more and more desperate. But I think it's just this, this Rolodex he has now, just knowledge information that he just, nothing phases him at this point. Yeah, the, the playoff question is interesting because I've thought about this um, where, you know, I'm just not, I'm not sold on the fact that NFL playoff football is fundamentally as different from regular season football as it is in the NBA. Now, I think the NBA, there are really like bright, flashing red reasons for flashing red light reasons for why it's different. I mean, it's an 82 game season. Teams are taking games off all the time. They're trying to get through the season. It's not like the NFL, the NFL there, there are rarely games. I mean, maybe you could say a, a team going into the last game, last week of the, of the season and they have a, a position secured. Like there are, there are rarely games where teams are like, we're not putting through our full hundred percent effort each and every week, including coaching, including others. I know we hear these things about, oh, the Chiefs are hiding their good plays. I, I don't know if I buy that quite honestly, because it's really important to have that buy, right? Like you're not just going to say, oh, you know what? Well, whatever. We, we, we have the buy. We don't have the buy. And then we'll just, we'll just bring out the good plays in the playoffs and then we'll win. I, I, I'm just not sure how that, how that works. So I think there's that. And then in the NBA also, you know, defensively, uh, the defense Titans is part of this effort thing. Like they can really, you can really play full effort the entire time so you have to be able to play a different game in, in the nba because of the fact that there's going to be so it's going to be so much more physical is nfl football that much more physical in the playoffs than it is during the regular season 
I mean, maybe, but I, I would not think that the the Delta is nearly the size as it is in the NBA. Now, one thing I can point to in the NFL that may have been to Brady's benefit earlier in his career is, I mean, there's a weather factor. There's a weather factor. So I could see that. Like, so, so that is definitely different. Like the, the weather during the playoffs generally is going to be a lot colder, a lot worse. And there, there are studies that show teams coming from warm weather locations, although this wouldn't be the case with the Bucks this year, uh, but maybe Brady's like built up that, that cold weather ability. So teams coming from a warm weather city to a cold weather city uh, don't perform as, don't perform as well when that ends up happening. Uh, just, just looking at the differential in temperature. So there's maybe that, but I, I guess I'm just not quite sold on the, on the playoffs being the difference. And I think when you look at the numbers for Tom Brady, when he was winning, like the defense that he was playing with, and he was playing with the New England generally, obviously not in that the, the, the Eagles Super Bowl against Nick, against Nick Foles, but generally he has had better defenses, defensive performances than Aaron Rodgers, than Peyton Manning, than other guys have had. He may have been slightly better himself as far as how he performs, but the defense has just been a lot better on those teams. So how much are we attributing, you know, I, I'll see a quote today was like, well, you know, Tom Brady just knew how to win that game. I'm like, this is a t- the team is playing, right? Like, like I, I, it's just hard to, to, for me to pull all that together. So maybe I reflexively push against that just because there's so many people on the Tom Brady uh, knows how to win goat bandwagon. Yeah. I guess I, one thing I realized when you, we were talking there, quick, you know, unexpected point. Um, yeah. The, uh, the Bucks are now the first team to win a Super Bowl without that first round buy since the 2013 Ravens. Uh, and we all, you know, spent all season talking about, you know, is, is the one buy just for the one seed, you know, unfair? Is it too much of an advantage for, you know, for those teams? Uh, well, they beat both the Bucks beat both of them, the Packers and the Chiefs. So, um, and they, you know, they had a wild card game and all that. So it's pretty funny that they also, you know, on top of all that, they also pulled that off. So yeah, who knows? The rules just don't apply to this guy. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting about that buy thing. It's one of those things where the, the, the one team who gets the buy has a bigger relative advantage because there is no other buy team. But at the same time, because we only have one buy, it's more likely that a team without a buy is going to win a Super Bowl than it would be in the past when you'd had two buys on each side. So, you know, it, it, it's an accomplishment, but there's a reason for that. It's going to happen more often, team without teams without buys, because you're only going to have one rather than having two. Uh, on each side so so that, that that's part of it too so I guess what I when I think of Brady like these last couple of championships I mean this is this to me is like Michael Jordan on the Wizards winning a champion winning a championship I know people think Michael Jordan was bad on the Wizards he was actually not that bad when he first started off so if he had like some other superstar talent around him and then he won a championship that's how I would I would be be looking at this now rather than you know Tom like this being uh, uh you can equate this to a Michael Jordan championship when he was in his prime yeah, no, I see that for sure. I guess the next example we could see is maybe if like if LeBron is able to pull one off like near 40, which I think he's only like, what, three, four years away from now. Yeah. You know, if Anthony Davis is the best player on the team in the Lakers, but he's still, you know, LeBron or, or, or something like LeBron, that, that could be, yeah, like the closest thing we get to, which honestly, I, I wouldn't be surprised by at this point. Finally, the 2021 NFL Draft Guide is out with 150 player profiles, everything you need to be on top of things well before we get to April when your team is on the clock. You can get it with an Edge or Elite subscription. Use promo code SUPERBOWL25 and get 25% off those subscriptions. And that promo code is active through Monday after the Super Bowl. That's 25% off an annual Edge or Elite subscription which includes the 2021 NFL Draft Guide with promo code Super Bowl 25. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is, I'm kind of like a, a Peyton Manning stan also. And 
you know, he had some bad performances in the playoffs. So that's definitely true. Now, three and three against Tom Brady in the playoffs. So it's not like, you know, he's not he's he's, he's the best record of anyone against against Tom Brady in, in the playoffs um, because of helpful having that home field sometimes even against Brady. Um, but the thing with Manning is I felt like he actually had the the regular season resume to be on this on that type of plane. I mean, he won. He won uh, the MVP award five times. He was first team all pro six times or seven times. Um, second team all pro a couple of times. Brady, you know, Brady, Brady's won. Uh, well, we think, well, what was interesting is like just how they're viewed. Like there, there's a team of the decade for 2000 through 2009. And Brady actually got the first team player on that team of the decade, despite the fact that Peyton Manning had four MVPs to his one, had five first team all pros to his one. Um, and he's just, he was just first or second in these, these stats like EPA per play and things like that almost every single year that he's gone on. But he didn't have the playoffs too. So I think that's another area where he could have been that guy. And now we have Mahomes coming in. I think Mahomes really can be almost that guy too because he's, again, he's like first or second most efficient. He already has the MVP. He's going to be competing for MVP. He's really seen throughout the league as the best player in the league from almost the first, you know, the first year that he's, that he's taking snaps in a, in a second season. So he's another guy where I think has a more legitimate case for that going forward. If he can continue to play at this level. Yeah. I mean, we just spent a whole segment talking about Tom Brady's greatness and Mahomes in three seasons as a starter, he's lost two playoff games and it was in overtime against Tom Brady. And it was in the super bowl uh, without an offensive line against Tom Brady. So yeah, he's, he's got a lot of, a lot of time ahead of him. And I, and I think he's going to be back in this game many more times. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right. So let's go um, QB carousel now. So uh, hopefully, I don't know if uh, the news is broken while we're talking here that Carson Wentz is going to the bears for uh, three first round picks now. Um, So so we'll see what ends up being. So as a bears fan, what do you think about these Wentz rumors? And I, okay, I'll just, just, just for context here, when the Wentz thing was, was being mulled about when he was benched and whether he'd be traded or not, there was a lot of talk on social media. I'm not going to call out any particular names. Arif Hassan was one of them. Um, where they saying that, you know, you're going to have to Osweiler this guy in order to get rid of him. And I, I, I always push back against that because you just got to find one team, right? You just got to find one team that says, this guy was almost an MVP. This guy was the number two pick. People loved him as a prospect. A lot of teams really loved him as a prospect. And his contract is going to end up costing whoever he goes to. I forget what it is, but it's like 24, 25 million a year over the next couple of years. Not that expensive. It's like we're talking about Teddy Bridgewater type of money. So I, I never, I never thought that he was going to, you're going to have to Osweiler him off to somebody. But now that we're getting this talk of two picks, what, what's going through your mind when you're hearing stuff like that? Well, that was just first. That was a lovely segue. But like, all right, let's talk about some good quarterbacks. Okay, now here's the Bears fan to talk about <laughs> just, just guys that cannot play quarterback. The yeah, next Super Bowl for. champion. Let's talk about the next <laughs> Super Bowl champion. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think it's fascinating because also you, you throw in the Jared Goff, uh, Matthew Stafford trade, and there's conflicting reports there on whether he was a salary dump, you know, like an Osweiler, or whether the, the Lions really wanted him and that he was valued to him and or they, they valued him. And if they did, then the package looks crazy, right? Like, you get a third, two future firsts, and if they actually did like golf, then it, then yeah, you're, there's no way that Wentz is going to be a salary dump if that's the case. Uh, or uh, it kind of gets twisted up there, but yeah, but it, yeah, I agree with you in that. If you in the NFL have any stretch of good quarterback play, some e- egotistical guy at a different team is going to convince himself that they can turn you around and fix you, and all these words we hear. So all you need to have is that little semblance of good play, and I think. And honestly works really in favor of us discussing taking quarterbacks in the draft over and over until you hit like 
like look at like you know Miami for example like Tua still could probably fetch a first round pick we're talking about Sam Darnold getting a second and a fifth Schefter thinks he still might get a late first like that's insane but it just shows that their value just doesn't seem to go away but yeah so anyways with the one situation like you said first and foremost you know a lot of that money because the Eagles were already in a tough salary cap situation he had way more money prorated down the line than did golf so you know, I want to say golf had like a $30 million signing bonus, whereas Wentz had a $16 million signing bonus and a $30 million option bonus the year later because they needed to push as much money down the line as possible. So the contract you take back is not bad. It's $25 million this year. I want to say $22 million with 15 of that guaranteed the next year. And then, and then you're kind of clear. So, you know, $40 million guaranteed for two years of, of Wentz. Um, if you can turn them around as they all, you know, believe they can, then you probably look like a genius. But I, I think it just speaks to like, at what point do you do you truly have a value on a player and do you truly stick to your guns on your valuation versus just buying into the market or just buying into like ideas and thoughts and theories like th- this once market to me just just strikes me as like no one came into it knowing what they were, were going to get out of it how we came in saying I want two firsts and, and it's and we're all laughing about it like oh he's crazy he thinks he's going to get that and who knows what it ends up as but he might not he might not even be that crazy so I mean, from a Bears fan perspective, I'm obviously not bullish on it at all. It's more about the fact that we talked at the top of the show with Ryan Pace. I mean, this is a principal agent problem in the NFL in that you know coming into this season, Ryan Pace knows if I don't make the playoffs or maybe even better in 2021, I will be out of a job. And so you can't blame the guy for doing everything that, that is possible to make that happen. But, I mean, he's probably going to give up some more first-round picks or, or at least one or, or maybe some seconds to do that. And so it's more about a long-term thing where like, even if Wentz does work out, what's the risk that you're in a Deshaun Watson situation anyways, where like, can you retain Allen Robinson or is your wide receiver one going to be, granted, I love the guy, is, is your wide receiver one going to be Darnell Mooney, a fifth rounder from last year? Um, you know, the offensive line, both tackles need replacing in the near future, if not immediately. Um, and then the defense is good, but aging. I mean, Akeem Hicks and Kyle Fuller, both really good players, but you know, now on the back nine of their careers. So it's, Looking at it from the one-year window, as as Pace and Bears fans seem to do, yeah, let's get excited. Maybe it could work out. But if you look at it from a long-term perspective, there's very few kind of you know outcomes that that are going to be good long-term. You know, I was thinking about the Bears could do is um, get a few more tight ends. Just you could just every position, <laughs> just put a tight end on every position because I think that's what they were building towards last year. And Wentz loves tight ends. I mean, you know, Dallas Goddard, uh, Zach Ertz. So that's something to to think about. Just an all tight end, an, an all tight end offense could be could be the way to go there. But but seriously, okay, let's let, let's look at your other alternatives, right? So you have Foles, you have uh, which is, of course is interesting. I thought it was interesting that as these hypothetical trades that were going through were proposed or rumored trades, Foles coming back to the Eagles, which is which is kind of a weird thing. So you don't even have that as a as a backup plan necessarily anymore. Uh, you have uh, you don't have Mitch Trubisky, right? You don't have him unless you're going to franchise him uh, or you're going to, to to extend him. So what do you think about Wentz, not just in a vacuum, but Wentz the these, you know, versus these other options that you have, a Foles, a Trubisky, is he a clear upgrade or are you that down on him after last year? So, yeah, so I wouldn't go that far. I mean, my thoughts on Trubisky, I think, are, are fairly clear. Um, you know, I, I, I think the guy, to his credit, like, works really hard, great guy by all accounts, but I just don't know if he has it upstairs. Um, and everyone likes to think it could be an Alex Smith situation and, it may, and knowing Bears, you know, quarterback futility, I'm sure it will be. I'm sure he'll be making Super I mean, Bowl Alex Smith, the- honestly, is not the most exciting situation. 
you know, because uh, Alex Smith's situation became a uh, Tyreek Hill, having Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey and everyone else there situation too. Yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah. And a great offensive line, you know, first overall pick left tackle, Mitchell Schwartz, all that. But yeah, so no, I, I think he's definitely an upgrade or, or at least has a much higher ceiling, um, you know, than, than a Foles. Um, but, but my thing is, is that when you're going to look at ceiling floor, like, okay, the value of Carson Wentz, knowing that the floor is what we saw last year, which is, I mean, the floor is the basement. The floor is very low. Yeah. Why not just go ahead and take a, you know, like a Jameis Winston, you know, maybe like a Ryan Fitzpatrick, like guys that could get, that maybe can't reach the ceiling of Carson Wentz. But if you look at the range of outcomes, you know, the, that meaty middle is most likely going to be the same for all three guys. And then one's going to cost. Like I said, a couple high picks or, or maybe players and then, you know, two years and about 40 million of guaranteed money versus I think you get Jameis or Fitzpatrick for one year, seven to ten million dollars. Yeah, I, you know, I think I like uh, Matt Nagy more than a lot of other people do because uh, you had the, the 2018 where Trubisky looked. Well, okay, I won't say he looked good, but the results were good, right? His numbers were, were pretty good. And in stretches last year, it was the same thing too. So I, I could see you, you, I could see you talking yourself into the fact of if Trubisky is a 20th percentile quarterback and you're getting production out of him in stretches and sometimes in long, fairly long stretches of like a 65th percentile quarterback, then if you bring Wentz in, what what can you potentially do if you have a similar sort of sort of rise? So I, I can see talking stuff to that. Now you mentioned a couple of these other names that are available, and I think that's where it really becomes interesting, is because you're not you're not restricted to only looking at who is currently on the roster when you're thinking about where else you can go. Uh, if you are if you are someone like the Bears, and, and this this can apply to other teams, of course, that are out there, uh, the Colts who may be in the in the Wentz in the Wentz sweepstakes. So so the the, the other names out here, you mentioned. Um, Sam Darnold. I don't know. Again, what's interesting which about Darnold is you said anyone had a good stretch of play, you could get hype, but we don't even have that. We don't even have that from yeah. Darnold. He's a pure prospect guy. Um, but that works too for some. Like a like a, I mean, Bradford was better than Darnold, but Bradford was kind of just like a pure prospect sort of sort of guy that's going on there. Um, you have Marcus Mariota, perhaps via trade out there. You know, and a decent de- decent guy. Um, uh, Cam Newton, Jameis Winston, Ryan Fitzpatrick. Gardner Minshew is another name. I'm probably missing some that could potentially be Jacoby Brissett. Maybe I'm not missing anyone who has a realistic chance. Uh, yeah, that's a stretch. So you mentioned right off the top, Jameis and Fitzpatrick, and I could see those as being people that they believe at least on a short-term basis could come right in and win. So would those be your preferred options um, to pair with someone like Foles and let them battle it out? Let's say if this trade did not happen. So I would say first, just like really quick to touch on the Nagy piece. Like I also at times, at various times, have been a defender of of at least his offense. I think there's some game management stuff and all that. You know, he's an Andy Reid treat guy for a reason. But I don't like, like how he used to wear the visor with the bald head with no hat, like in the freezing cold. Like that <laughs> that just seemed like poor decision making. Like I, I, I've never understood that. Yeah, like steam just coming off of the top of his head. What I've never seen anything like that. But I, I think he's I think he's cut down on that recent recent seasons. But they used to <laughs> always freak me Yeah, out, I think so. he wears a beanie now. So maybe maybe yeah. Like why was he doing and... that before? Why did he <laughs> just have this visor guess, on but... in the freezing cold? All right, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, but I would say shout out to uh, former Bears center Olin Krutz, who had this point, which is that Bill Lazor, new Lions head coach Dan Campbell, had Bill Lazor on his staff and fired him and literally said the guy refuses to run the ball. John yeah. DeFilippo was the offensive coordinator in Minnesota and got fired because he refused to run the ball. So 
again, I like what Matt, I mean, again, I'm not saying I want to be, a, you know, the Dan Campbell run the ball and, and eat kneecaps offense, but you just kind of see in the way Nagy approaches it. He doesn't want to change. He doesn't like Trubisky was successful. Again, he literally played those four games were literally against the four worst defenses in the NFL against the pass this year, but still they were successful running an offense that Matt Nagy doesn't want to run. He wants to be in shotgun 80% of the time. He wants to run an RPO based offense and all this stuff. He doesn't want to run boot action and all these things they do. Yeah, it was successful and maybe he will pivot and, and maybe they will realize they have to do more of that. Um, you know, kind of working off of some more outside zone looks as opposed to inside zone that Reed likes to run. Um, so they were adapting, but I don't think they really want to. I think they want a guy that they can, that can run their offense. Um, and that's kind of why Jameis, for me, like, Jameis is a big dude that can stand in the pocket, take some hits and, and deliver throws. It's obviously also a value standpoint. I don't think he's going to be expensive. And I think for his, for, from his perspective, you'd want to sign a one-year flyer and then even if he leaves, you know, kind of like Teddy Bridgewater in New Orleans, you get that third round compensatory pick they're scheduled to get. So that's kind of the thinking there. But I mean, beyond that, Mariota did have that one game for the Raiders where he looked good, but he also wasn't even healthy on the active roster until like week 10, which has been an issue for him his whole career. Um, he took some Newton, hits in that game. I mean, game I too. get the receivers were terrible, but I mean, he literally didn't throw the ball last year. So I mean, I don't even know there. Um, and then Minshew is kind of interesting. I mean, Minshew for two years would cost under $2 million. Um, uh, mentioning Filippo, he was the offensive coordinator uh, in Jacksonville in 2019. So he got, you know, a lot out of Minshew, obviously has a relationship there. Um, so again, from a value perspective there, it's like, okay, you probably send them a later pick, maybe a fourth or a fifth, and you get a guy for two years, $1.8 million, and see what you can make out of it. Um, but really, at the end of the day, there, there's no good option at this point. You know, I think they were in the mix on Stafford, but... I think there was an in-division, you know, surplus cost there where the, you know, the lines are, we're going to give you our quarterback. You're going to have to pay even more than everybody else. And, and they wanted to do a favor there and send him to the team we wanted to go to. Um, but yeah, there just don't really seem to be many good options out there. That's kind of why I'm just going with the bargain bin, just hope for, you know, shoot for upside and just hope something works out. And then honestly, Fitzpatrick was more of just like a, just for fun, just, just for fun value, just, just for the vibes, just give me that beard and, and some gold chains and a post-game press conference. Just so, you know, when we go five and 11, at least I can enjoy it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He, he's ready for the cold with the, with the beard. In these uncertain times, life is full of questions like when should I start thinking about life insurance? But however difficult these questions may be, Western and Southern can help you answer them. Backed by over 130 years of experience together, we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement, and investments. Compensated endorser, products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. There's this weird phenomenon. and Tell me if you think that I'm wrong in this assumption, but I feel like if whoever, if X quarterback that they get does not play well uh, in 2021, let's say they miss the playoffs, they, they don't play well, in some ways... I feel like Ryan Pace's the perception of him and his chance of survival is actually higher if that quarterback is Carson Wentz and you game up a bunch for him than if it is Jameis Winston or Ryan Fitzpatrick because then everyone's going to say you knew that guy wasn't any good like nobody wanted him sort of sort of thing where they could say like uh, they could say well maybe Wentz will turn it around like you're going to hang on to to Wentz he's, he's not going to be gone like he's not going to be like that was a dumb move he's gone and you're gone sort of thing so I think there's a, like a perverse incentive there too. Um, even though it makes no, it doesn't make logical sense because you're gonna have to give up more to get to get that poor performance. 
No, I totally see that. I totally see that. Coming into this offseason, I, I thought they were going to – I knew they were going to assess the, the, you know, the, the veteran market. I know they've been pushing hard for Derek Carr, who they actually tried to get last offseason. And, and now, after a really good season, I think his value is probably very high at this point. Um, but I know they're interested there, too. I, I get that, they're, again, they're probably trying to save their jobs. But I thought they were going to draft somebody, and then they would have the protection of – well, look, he's a rookie. Yeah, he had some growing pains, but let us stick with him and, and kind of see, you know, give us a year two or a year three to see where it goes. But I, I do kind of see what you're saying, right? Where it's like, okay, well, at least they took a Wentz who, you know, was almost an MVP in 2017, who has a high ceiling, um, you know, and all that. And so I, I do see that for sure. But I mean, who knows at this point? I, I, I think he has a lot of trust, um, you know, from ownership. And, and, and look, to his credit, like, yes, they had, the defense has been good. Um, I mean, again, when you spend that much on, on assets for defense, you know, top 10 pick for Roquan Smith, top 10 pick for Leonard Floyd, who obviously didn't really pan out, but was a fine player, you know, two first round picks for Mac, like the defense should be good. But, but yeah, there's, there's, there's things to point to. And then everyone likes to say, like, if he did just take Watson instead or Mahomes instead of Trubisky, we'd probably all be sitting around saying how he's like the best GM of all time. I get the argument, but, but at the end of the day, from my perspective, it's always about value not just like the results so like like there's never a move like the Wentz move would be another perfect example where even if they do get a good result you'd say okay yes it worked out they won 11 games they, they made the playoffs they maybe won a playoff game but it's like but you still like you just paid more than you needed to so once again you just overpaid for something and eventually it's going to catch up to you um, if it hasn't already yeah I mean it, it, giving up you know they gave up those mid-round picks just to move up to get Trubisky. Then you mentioned the the Mac trade. So, yeah, I mean, if you look at where, where their drafts have been, I mean, in 2018, you mentioned Roquan Smith, so an inside linebacker. Then they took James Daniels, uh, a center after that. Now, they did take Anthony Miller as, as a wide receiver, and Miller was someone who showed some promise, but then it kind of looked a little bit flaky last year at best. They didn't have picks in the first two, <laughs> two rounds uh, in 2019. Then they took a running back with their uh, David Montgomery, who's, who's come around, but still a running back with that first pick. And then last year, you know, they come in and take Cole Komet, so they take a tight end there. Uh, for their first pick. So not only have they not had these first picks, but they haven't exactly been taking some high upside shots with, with, with these first, with, with these picks too. So you, you said, when is it going to catch up to me? It's probably right now is where you don't have that, that rookie pipeline, right? Like they don't, you don't have a lot of good young talent that you've been able to draft. Um, Cause that's what kind of got them to this point was finding people like Eddie Jackson and others later on in, in the draft. And as we've said a billion times, like that is not a strategy. Uh, I've heard, I, I heard that with the bears when they talked about trading away these picks, they said, well, you know, we're so good at the later picks that we don't need the, the earlier picks. It's it just, you know, it, it's not a strategy that could continue because it's just impossible for any team to, to do that on a sustainable basis. Yeah, that is, that is a favorite. Um, and it's funny, I, I, again, to his credit, he is, I do think he is one of the better scouts or they have a, one of the better scouting departments at hitting on those late picks, but is it sustainable? Not really. You might get one a year. Again, they, they had Darnell, Darnell Mooney this year kind of as that guy in the fifth, but they also traded up for, uh, they traded up for him and they traded up for another guy in the fifth who didn't even, couldn't even get on the roster. Um, oh, I mean, he's on the roster, but you know, was on, on the active roster on game days. So it's like, it, it, there's just, and then Anthony Miller example as well, traded up for him, also traded up for David Montgomery, you know, so your, your highest pick in the third, you also traded up for um, the pick they sent back to New England, turned into Damian Harris, who's probably a comparable running back. Um, you know, given the situation, all that. So it's, again, it's, it's, it's always just like, 
you're just making it as hard as possible on yourself. Like it's not so much about the end result, but it's just like how you got there. The journey is always a challenge and always just making it harder. And yeah, they now don't have, you know, a, a strong pipeline of young talent, but I think a key, like you said, they also don't have a strong pipeline of young talent at important positions. I mean, the offensive line, yes, they took, they took James Daniels in the second round. Um, they also took Cody, Cody White here in the second round as well. So the interior is relatively solid, but like I said, they haven't drafted a tackle. I, I don't even know the last time they drafted, I mean, actually seventh round this year, you know, as a late flyer, but like wide receiver tackles, like, like, you know, getting, it's just like, you're not addressing, you know, the premier positions where you're going to get more surplus value on a draft pick if he is a hit. Um, and yeah, so it's just a tough situation all around. Um, they're going to try to squeeze whatever they can out of it. And, and who knows? I mean, you, you never know. Um, but it, it's not a sustainable strategy. That, that, that we know for sure. Like, there's no way this is going to turn into like a multi-year run of success just because they have so many things coming down the pike they need to replace and fix or pay. Um, like I said, Leon Robinson, like, you know, if you don't pay him right away, you, you have one of the weaker wide receiver cores in the NFL immediately. So it's just like there's always an issue arising. Um, and then, yeah, we made the, the tight end joke as well. Like they just keep spending a tight end, you know, cut Trey Burton, gave way too much to Jimmy Graham. Komet, I'll, I'll take an L on Komet. He looked like a really solid player. I think he'll be a good in-line tight end for, for, for many years to come. But like, you know, what's what's the value of that necessarily uh, in the grand scheme of things? So, yeah, it, it's just always the way it has to be a grind every time. Yeah, it's interesting that the division is a little bit interesting, too, because I feel like, I mean, yeah, Rodgers, he's, what, 37, 38, he's going to be something like that. Uh, Cousins may be on his way out pretty soon. You got Detroit going through its its own version of a rebuild right now. So, I think, you know, think, things could shake up there going forward. I mean, maybe, maybe there's even an opinion of getting Wentz or someone like that could propel you to to get in front of that division in the next couple of years but again you know you don't have the pipeline of players coming in so that's something that that can be um that can be difficult all right let's think about some of these other teams though so like the colts are probably next as being the team that everyone points to do you think ballard is is risking something if he does not make a somewhat splashy move now would trading for Sam Darnold be a splashy move? Even there's there, there'd be some, there'd be ripples. Like there's something there. It's not, it's more than, even though it, it might not necessarily be better than, but it's more than, you know, picking up a, a Jameis or a Fitzpatrick or someone like that. I think in people's minds, as far as what they're able to do, you'd certainly have to give up more in trade compensation because I think Ballard has played pretty well as far as not overextending at any particular point. Um, I mean, you could say the fact that they gave up um, a, a first round pick and then, uh, for for a player last year, and then you know a huge contract that was a little bit that was a little bit off, but generally hasn't done that. Was out on the on the Stafford trade. He wasn't wasn't going to participate there. The the word from Albert Breer was that I don't think they even officially offered their first round pick, and that first round pick was uh, is the twenty first overall pick. Uh, what would you be thinking if you are Ballard? Can you risk? Just going through and saying we're going to get a, a Cam Newton, a Jameis Winston, a Ryan Fitzpatrick, uh, someone there, a Marcus Mariota, or do you need to to make a play uh, either for Wentz or for I mean Darnold is like a is like a step down I would say from that. It is super interesting, right? Because I think you know people like to talk about windows and stuff like that, and. Well, you know, first and foremost, I think he had a little bit of cover with the Andrew Luck retirement, where I think like that the organization probably recognized, like, let's give him a little bit of patience because like that was a blind side. And and look, if, if that didn't happen, I mean, they, they we're probably talking about them contending in the AFC. But but we're now far enough removed from that that I do think like that 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 excuse is probably gone by now. 
I mean, look, they're second. They're projected to be second in cap space in, in 2021. They have a lot of good. I mean, their offensive line is stout. They got to replace their left tackle now with Anthony, Anthony Costanza retiring. But but a lot of good pieces there. Michael Pittman was a great pick at wide receiver. T.Y. Hilton also a free agent, but you know they could probably retain him as well. So I think there is at a certain point where it's like, look, like we give this many good good young players to not be aggressive and to not maybe you know quote unquote overpay might be too, you know, too frugal and kind of not willing to take that risk and take that chance. I think it's a fair argument. Um, I guess the Donald point, I mean, maybe, I, I think the one thing teams fall in love with there is like, I think he's, he might even be younger than Joe Burrow or he's like right around Joe Burrow's age. So it's like, there are people oh yeah, yeah. Darnold was, Darnold was, I think the youngest ever day one starter. I, I mean, so. he's one of the youngest, youngest drafted players ever. Uh, there were quite a few young players there, but he's even younger. The Lamar Jackson was really young. Josh Rosen was really young, but he was the youngest of them all. I think it's an April birthday where we rarely see that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, for, for them, I think you could sell it as a splash play, just, you know, kind of being like, look, we're getting a young potential franchise quarterback. He goes from, you know, an awful offensive line, an awful coach and all of that to, you know, really, really good offensive line, you know, Frank Reich by all accounts, you know, players love to play for him and all that. But I do think there's a little bit of pressure there. Like, I think they're in the Wentz conversation, not only because of all the connections, but also because it's like, look, like, when you know, we're not going to be able to keep these guys for so long. I mean, Darius Leonard's going to want money soon. Quentin Nelson's going to set the record for guards. It's going to blow it out of the water. Like, and then it becomes more challenging. So not attacking this window a little bit. Um, I mean, like you said, yes, they traded a first-round pick for DeForest Buckner uh, and gave him a very big extension. But, but I mean, they had the resources to do so. So, yeah, I think – and in a weird way, there is a little bit of pressure there, but he's been consistent um, in saying he, you know, he does not overpay. He does not feel the pressure. Um, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't panic. I think at his end of the season press conference, he said like, you know, whoever I do take, if it doesn't work out, you're all going to hate me anyways. So I'm not going to, you know, fall into this pressure to do it um, to get a guy. I think what will be interesting though, is if they do consider moving up in the draft, um, you know, cause they're not going to get somebody at 21, like you mentioned. And I think, you know, it, it could be tough to, to sell like, oh, we got to give this guy a year to get, you know, get into the offense and figure it out. Um, so might maybe waste another year of that roster, but they're still young and they have time. So I, I think that they have the, the, the perspective of, look, if, if we have to, we'll just go in the draft and may have to move up and take some, you know, maybe a Trey Lance or whoever falls and he trades down a ton. So they will recoup that value eventually. Um, I mean, obviously those trade-offs in the, you know, for a quarterback cost a lot more, but he'll find a way to get that back. But I think it's a fair argument. I don't think I don't think they can go into the season with like a Ryan Fitzpatrick or, or like a you know like a nothing or like a Maris, Marcus Mariota. Like I think they have to get someone, um, which I guess kind of leaves a pretty short list. Yeah, I mean it is a little bit strange though, right? That he was willing to trade the let me look it up the thirteenth pick yeah. for DeForest Buckner, but yet at least in the Stafford portion of these, these discussions and the rhetoric that he's saying around these trades um, looking, you know, holding on to that first round pick a little bit tighter when we're talking about the quarterback position. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I think that's certainly fair. I would just real quick on like a draft value perspective because all those guys were going for first plus maybe two firsts um, because the NFL values higher picks so much more. I did like that. All it was was 13 because 13 is not that different from 2025. You know, if it, if it was top five or top seven, different conversation. Um, but I think he did well there to just give up 13. Um, but yeah, no, I, I hear you're right. To do that for a defensive tackle, granted, a very, very good player, um, and then not be willing to do the same for, for a quarterback is it, certainly probably questionable. Um, and I think one knock on him too, although I think part of this was honestly just paying enough money to get above the, the minimum, you know, cash spend, which is a 
a whole different, different conversation. But, like, they gave Jacoby Brissett and Brian Hoyer, like, solid money, um, you know, right after the Andrew Luck fallout. Um, so his quarterback swings haven't, you know, haven't been spectacular. Obviously, Rivers was good this year. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I think fans could get restless if, if there's not at least someone they can buy into and convince themselves that with the surrounding circumstances could at least, you know, contend um, in the playoffs a little bit. But the, the AFC is just a gauntlet right now, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think you could also, in a similar to the Wentz deal, if Ballard, if they go for Darnold, you can play the, he's still young, it was his first year, let's give him another chance sort of situation if things if things don't happen going forward. Um, I guess there's still some other dominoes to, to fall potentially to see what, what, you know, whether or not the Jets are going to have, the, if they're going to draft someone, because um, then that would delay the, the process a bit there to figure out what they're going to do with, with Darnold. And then are they going to try to make it a play for Deshaun Watson and those things? And then the talk today, now this is no, maybe we'll talk about this briefly uh, and maybe even round out with this. I mean, are we seeing like the sea change with quarterbacks deciding what's going on? Because there's some rumbles with uh, Russell Wilson in an interview today. I don't know if you saw this where he was saying, number one, he wants more input, which is kind of sounding a lot, a little bit like what we saw from Deshaun Watson. And he seemed like he was a little disgruntled about what was going Wilson was a little disgruntled about not maybe not having enough input on what was going on on the, for the offensive coordinator uh, move. And he seemed like maybe he was backing Schottenheimer a bit here uh, versus, versus Carroll. So there's, so there's that. And then, you know, he kind of said, well, maybe I'll be here. Maybe I won't. There were rumors in 2018 and, I don't know if they were substantiated. I don't know how substantiated, but it's from a couple of different places that there was a potential trade of Wilson to the Browns for the number one pick. And that pick would have been Josh Allen um, is, is, is the rumor. Um, I, Schneider went to go see Allen at his pro day. Um, there's there's videos of him watching Allen throw, and he's like, ooh, like he has this look on his face, like he's he's in love with the stars. You know, the little hearts are popping all over <laughs> all over near near his head. So maybe so you know maybe there's some maybe there's something to this where they're not necessarily all on the on the same page over there. And I don't know if they've ever really treated Wilson or seen Wilson. They've almost capitulated in giving him that huge contract and letting him take over the offense, doing all those things, rather than really wanting him to, to be the man there that you that you would have seen if other quarterbacks were in that same situation. Yeah, no, I completely agree. It almost kind of reminds you of like the Dak Prescott situation a bit where they yes. recognize he's a good player, but maybe aren't completely sold that he's a great player, that he's a guy right. that will carry you to, you know, to, to victory. And look, I, I don't I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. Like I think if the situation around him wasn't wasn't really bad on, on the offensive line as it's been pretty much the entire time he's been there, granted they've added Dwayne Brown, they, they've done some things, but um, and as we talked about, you know, the top of the show, he does love to kind of run around and play hero ball. So at a certain point, a lot of those sacks do fall, you know, uh, on his shoulders. But to the point of players, particularly quarterbacks, obviously um, getting more involved. I, I mean, I think it's kind of hard to push back on. I, I mean, they recognize we're the most important and most valuable person in, in each building. Um, do I, do I agree? They should literally get to pick the guy. Like, no, like I, I, it should be a process. Your GM, your owner, everyone should be involved, but at least on the offensive side of the ball, I don't see why they wouldn't feel like, look, I should have, I think I should have heavy influence on who we're going to go with an offensive coordinator or, you know, a head coach, if it's an offensive coach. And I want to, again, I'm not going to, I want to be in the room. Let's say we have a list of four. I want to give you my rank list one through four. If you don't take my number one, that's okay. But I need to know that you actually weighed and valued my, my input. Um, 
I mean, look, we're in this player empowerment era and, and, and it's, it should be expected. And I think it's fair for quarterbacks in particular, you know, arguably the most important position in all of sports um, to kind of start using their leverage a bit, kind of throwing their weight around a bit. Um, I do think he was definitely a big Schottenheimer guy. And I don't know if he loved that move. Um, so yeah, I would expect more of it going forward, honestly. Um, and I, I see nothing wrong with it. I, I, and I, I think like with Watson as well, I don't think the issue is that they didn't pick who he wanted. It was the fact that they didn't even take it into consideration, which are very different things in my opinion. Like, to actually just value it and give it give it consideration is different than just, okay, whatever he says goes. No, I'm not saying that, you know, Russell Wilson should be a player coach or a GM coach. But, yeah, I mean, Rodgers is about to do the same thing in Green Bay as well. Um, and then at the end of the day, I also think he's probably just looking at their first-round pick record the last five years and is just like, guys, what are you, what are you doing out here? Like, like, you haven't given me anything to work with. Um, so maybe I should be, you know, throwing more opinions in the mix because we got to change something. Yeah, there, there just seems to be less friction now in the NFL trade market. You know, uh, teams would really hold on in, in the past and not want to take any risk, not want to trade as, as many uh, players, especially for, for picks. Um, but we still haven't seen really a quarterback, like a quarterback talk his way out of town who's in the quote-unquote prime. You know, uh, you could say that, that, you know, Carson Palmer retired and then, and then, got, and then got out. Uh, Brett Favre got out at the end of his career, but he was already on the decline. They were kind of looking to replace him. So we still haven't seen that yet. So I think it would be, I mean, I mean, I know this, all this talk with Watson, but they're steadfastly saying that they're, they're not going to, they're not going to deal him. So there still is a lot of power, a lot more power for the NFL because of the fact that they can throw on these franchise tag years on, onto the end that they just have this like really, really long uh, series of control there. So I think that's something to look at though, just because, yeah, I don't know if they're really sold on, on Wilson in the same way as some others. I mean, it's not like a Kirk Cousins situation with the, with the, the Washington, but it's, it's not, it's not a, it, it, they don't, they, they don't have them at that high of a level, but, but my real question is maybe this is, maybe I'll end on this before, before we go. Cause I think this is, this is an interesting thought exercise. What would Russell Wilson get on the trade market? Because I tend to think that his, the amount that he would get, I'm not, I'm, without throwing out a specifics, is less than what we all think, and it may make it very difficult to trade him for that reason. If Matthew Stafford just went for two first-round picks, I'm not sure you're getting more than two first-round picks for Russell Wilson at you know whatever he is in his in his early 30s now. Despite the fact that I think most people think it would be like, oh, if, if Stafford went for two, then Wilson should go for five. Yeah, no, I think also well, real quick, one aspect of the movement also is that I think we are, I mean, there have been some former GMs and stuff on Twitter that are like shocked that Jared Goff with his dead money and Stafford and, and Brandon Cooks right. and potentially the willingness like, to take the dead money too. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. So that's some cost fallacy and all that. Those constraints do, at least for some franchises, appear to be going away. So I do think we will see more movement. Again, quarterback is always different in every aspect. Is it more um, money though? Like, do you have more of these owners who can actually, it's funny that you mentioned that about the right. owners. Maybe I'll go back to that for a second. The NFL is really unique in that you have this this money from people who you know bought a, the the rights to a team for five thousand dollars back in <laughs> you know a half a century ago and now they're billionaires but they don't have businesses outside of these teams where, where they're making money they, they haven't been forced to sell because the teams are so cash flow positive it's not like in other sports where you have a lull in the nba you have a, lo- a franchise who's losing money and then those first owners are they're out of there you know they're, they're selling it off and they're getting their cash infusion so is that part of it now that you have a little bit more of new money in the league that can write off uh, a big signing bonus that they gave a few years ago 
I think 100%. I mean, like the guys we mentioned, like obviously Stan Kroenke, you got that, you get that Walton money, you can do whatever you want, you know what I mean? And then, um, and then obviously Jeffrey Lurie is also, I think one of the, you know, one of the more wealthy owners among all the, all the wealthy owners. But yeah, so those, those teams also are in a different position where, like, you know, we talk about profit maximizing versus win maximizing owners and like, you know, the Mark Cubans of the world, like you could mention the NBA, Mark Cuban probably doesn't even care if he takes a loss on a season. Like, I don't, I don't think he does. Um, yeah. we're probably not going to see that in the NFL and, and, and again, I think it's impossible to take a loss in an NFL season, but yeah. So I think there are just going to be fewer constraints, um, just on movement in general. Um, and just no longer thinking like, well, we already gave this guy so much money, so we might as well ride it out. Um, especially now with, as we talk about, like teams are finally seem to realize if we don't have a top eight quarterback, we should just keep, we should just keep churning until we get one. Even if we have, you know, nine to 15, like it's still not probably going to be good enough. Um, and if the value is relatively high, like it doesn't sound like Carr is going to get moved, but I think we talked about this before his value is at, is at a peak right now. That would be phenomenal. If you get, you know, two first plus for Derek Carr. Sure. Maybe he has a fine career elsewhere, but it's like, that's great because last off season, I think people were like, Oh yeah, maybe he'll get like a first maybe. And it's like, now it's like, now it's like for sure thing two first. So tying that back to Russell Wilson, I think he'd probably get um, two firsts and like maybe two seconds. Um, I think the thing, the funny thing that like you can't go past three firsts, of course, unless you have extra first round picks from trades and whatnot. So for, you know, most teams, there's kind of a cap there at three firsts, obviously, you know, the Jets and Dolphins and those teams have, and Jaguars have extra, but I think it's strange because we might get a point where like, is there a, is there just like, is there not a trade value? Is there truly not a trade value for Deshaun Watson? Or is his trade going to be problematic to where, let's say he goes for, you know, three firsts and a second, like, then yeah, if you're, the, if you're a team trying to get Russell Wilson, you say, look, Deshaun Watson is 26 versus Russell's 32 years old. Deshaun Watson is, can do, you know, can fit in every type of system, can do everything, whereas like, we still have hype concerns with Russell Wilson or, or whatever those concerns may be. Like, we're not willing to go there. And then Seattle says, well, look, like, there's no, like, he's not like we we would need to get more than this. So there, there's an impasse because it's just not a value you can arrive at. I, I think we'll maybe eventually see that kind of shake out. Um, but no, I still think he would get two firsts and two seconds or, or something like that. Um, just because, you know, th low thirties seems to have a lot of football left in him and said he wants to play till 45 at one point. Um, also just really quick. I want to say too, there was also the rumor beyond the Browns, also the rumor that Sierra wanted to make him move to New York to play in New York too. So <laughs> You know, who knows? It might be more yeah, of a personal thing that. there, but yeah. Anyway, that was that. kind of she, a she's upgraded answer, his but... wardrobe. She's yeah. upgraded his wardrobe. I'll give her. I'll, I'll, I'll give her. I'll give her <laughs> that. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah. Well, it should be a really interesting and unique off season for this exact reason, and maybe it'll continue like that going forward. So I give you lots of opportunities to to write up some some good analysis here. Again, everyone. Follow Brad on Twitter at pff underscore Brad. He's had, like I said, he had this other analysis. He'll have something out on Wentz, I'm sure, whenever that happens, and some more stuff on free agency. And keep them in your prayers when you're, when you're seeing what happens with Wentz and with the Bears going forward. And uh, everyone, thanks for listening. Go ahead, rate and review the pod when you get the chance, and then I'll talk to you again next week. Thanks.